Science with a Swiss touch. Science with a Swiss touch. Science with a Swiss touch. <laughs> Conversations between Swiss journalists and their international peers at the World Conference of Science Journalists, brought to you by Swissnext San Francisco. So, hello, my name is Olivier Desibre. I'm a science journalist for the newspaper Le Temps in Geneva, and I'm also the president of uh, the Swiss Association of Science Journalists. And with me is uh, Ivan Oransky. Hello, Ivan. Hello. You're the co-founder of uh, a website or an entity called Retraction Watch. <laughs> and I'm sure almost none of our you know, listener does exactly know what it is. So can you tell us how it started, what it is, uh, how do you work, etc.? Sure. So Adam Marcus and I, Adam's another uh, science and medical journalist in, in the States. He and I co-founded Retraction Watch about seven years ago, 2010. And the idea behind it was that we had both written about retractions over the years. So scientific retractions are the sort of, if you will, the, the nuclear option for correction in science. They're the, you know, it means you can't believe the paper at all. You shouldn't rely on it. And you should rely on its findings. And Adam had found over the course of his career that there were a lot of really good stories in retractions. So one in particular where someone had actually made up all of the result, actually made up all the patients. Uh, he was an anesthesiology researcher looking at pain. And he had made up all the patients and eventually had to redact 25 different papers. But he also went to jail. And Adam actually wrote about this before anybody else. He broke the story. And so, you know, and he and I were friends, and I had reported about some retractions, but he had really reported on more of them. And so one day I said, hmm, let's start a blog. And um, what we didn't know was that there was a huge increase in the number of retractions. We thought there were maybe a few a month. Uh, there are now, today, in 2016, uh, and we've now built a database of retractions, in 2016 there were more than 1,300 retractions, uh, and that's up from about 30 in the year 2000. So there are a lot of things happening. I can sort of explain why that's happening, but uh, what we found was that there were just a lot of good stories to tell, mm -hmm. and that journals and institutions were not very transparent about what was happening. So, yeah, that's the question. What was the, from a journalistic point of view, what was the necessity to, to, to go this way? So there, there, it was sort of twofold. One was simply that there were good stories that weren't being told. You know, when you hear about someone faking data, you hear about fraud, and no one is telling that story. Well, as a journalist, it's like, wow, I can tell a story that nobody else is telling. So just getting scoops and, and talking about what we thought were important things uh, and people are interested in it. But the second reason maybe was even more important, which was transparency. So when you look at the retraction notices, the little you know paragraph, maybe two paragraphs, that run along with the retraction in the notice, uh, that was a very, it didn't say very much. And either it didn't say very much or it said something that wasn't true. So we thought it was important for readers to know, scientists to know, and journalists as well, of course, they're actually big readers of our site, uh, to know what was happening and, and for there to be more transparency. Shouldn't be the, the role of every journalist to do this. I mean, you, you're always presented as a, the big retraction watch guy or uh, with Adam as well. But it actually should be the role of every journalist to verify sources, to, to check if, the, if the, the facts are accurate and so on. Why did it have so much impact? I mean, were you alone to do this? And well, I think that the fact that we had done it for some time already, in other words, in our, in our various work, meant that we had a, a running start. 
and there were other people who actually are doing really great work in this area as well. I think what, what wasn't happening was a sort of just consistent, you know, real obsession with it. Uh, it is absolutely the, the role and really the responsibility of every journalist, science journalist, uh, health journalist, any journalist, to check facts. But to be fair, a lot of journals and universities don't make it very easy to check those facts. They don't publicize these retractions. And so it, it requires a certain amount of digging in order to actually know what's legitimate and what isn't legitimate. I think that, the, again, there were lots of people helping us. W one of the things that happened was that a lot of people were bringing allegations about different studies to light, or they're trying to bring them to light, and nobody was listening. There was no place to go. A lot of very frustrated people. Sometimes they became very angry people. And so we became a place for them to send all of these allegations. Uh, we couldn't do very much with many of them because we were just two people. Now we have more people. But one of the things that happened was this whole ecosystem with a site, for example, called PubPeer. And PubPeer is where you can leave anonymous allegations or anonymous, you know, verifiable facts or claims. Um, and so that became a sort of safety valve for what we were doing, a release valve for what we were doing. And it's been great to actually see the kind of attention that all of this has taken, that, that all of this has obtained. You know, I speak actually all over the world, and this was something that we hadn't really considered or even expected or certainly predicted. We're, we're constantly talking, whether it's to reporters from other countries, whether it's at universities in other countries. So there is much more of a sense that this is an important issue mm -hmm. that people need to deal with. Actually, it takes a lot of time, right, to dig dig and dig sure. again for yeah. all those reasons to check facts and so on that might explain why the journalists don't do that because sure. they're under pressure and so on and uh, yeah have, i mean have we, no time to do that we have a, a in many ways a great deal of luxury adam and i we have other jobs this for the first four and a half years it was just the two of us doing this and we did it whenever we wanted and, and when it's an obsession you sort of spend lots of time we've gotten much more sophisticated about it we've started filing public records requests often when we see retractions that are public universities. So here in the States, not every university is public, but in other countries we can actually also file public records requests. And that obviously takes time. It could take months, it could take even years. So you have to be in it for the long haul. But I think on a day-to-day -day level, science journalists can actually, well now they can check our database. So we have retractiondatabase.org has four, more than 14,000 retractions in it. You can check whether anything in that field has been retracted. You can check the author, you can check the university, anything you want. That's only a small percentage of the number of papers published. But, research, but I would always encourage reporters to look at what has happened before. Try and understand, has this paper, have papers by this author been cited before? Have they been cited and said that they were, it was said that they were wrong? And so, you know, looking at the context rather than just, and I understand the pressures everyone's under. I used to run Reuters Health. I, I assigned two stories a day, two complicated clinical trials a day, generally, to my staff. I understood it full well. I'm part of the problem. I, I'm still part of the problem in many ways. I don't run that anymore. But I absolutely understand that finding all of this is, is not easy. If nothing else, what we're hoping is that we're at least making people think about it. And we're happy to be a source for anyone who wants to dig further. You, you mentioned the universities. We're getting tremendous press releases with titles and so on when mm. the discovery is made. We, of course, get no press release when a retraction is made. Very Although, <laughs> So it shouldn't be the, the role of the universities as well to at least mention that and, and do that role instead of waiting and journalists uh, yeah. find them? And, and some universities do, and sometimes it's a statute. So in, in Japan, it's the law. They actually have to release uh, an investigation report, at least a summary of an investigation report. Here in the U.S., it's, it's rare for them to do that. And other countries are somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, universities 
should be as forthright and transparent about what goes wrong as about what goes right. Often what we've been seeing lately is that they, the universities are very quietly, they remove the press release from their website, so it goes to a, you know, an error, a 404 page error. That's not very transparent either. Journals, journals generally follow the rule that if they ever put out a press release about the original paper, they'll put out a press release about their attraction, or at least included in the press materials. That's probably pretty good practice. I, I think if everyone was doing that, would be better off. But you're right. Universities are scared the same way scientists are scared about talking about fraud, about talking about misconduct, about talking about mistakes, because they're afraid that you know funders will use that to stop funding them. And I and I, I can understand that things are very tight for funding right now. And so you could see in the short term that that might be the case. But in the long term, the way to build trust is to talk about the correction mechanism, to talk about the tiny percentage of people who commit fraud, which may not be that tiny, and say what you're doing about it. So we're getting to the end of this uh, interview. You, you launched this movement seven years ago. What do you wish for it to become? Well, we'd of course love to grow. We, uh, we're posting twice a day on retractionwatch.com, but what we hope is that the database, which is just about complete now as we're sitting here, we hope the database will be a, a very important and useful tool to cut down on waste in science, to cut down on dead ends that people are pursuing for, for months or even years. If you know that a paper has been retracted, if you do cite it, you should at least mention that. So we're hoping that our database can be hooked up to every kind of personal library that people use, that scientists use, and also that journalists use and what have you. So that's one way we'd place we'd like to go. Uh, and we're working on some other bigger projects, like with Science Magazine. We do a lot of features with them. We just think that this move to break open a lot of these public records, investigations, that's mm -hmm. starting to bear fruit. So sky's the limit. Very last question. Do you think it will help to give a better image of science to the broad public to say, okay, we're you know, pursuing all those retractions, etc., and uh, maybe fighting this fake news and so on, and saying, okay, we also detect the frauds, etc.? So. I'd like to think so. I, I think in the short term, you know, we've seen people even who believe in you know, creationism have, have used retraction watch to show, see, there's flaws in science, and so you might as well believe the biblical story of creation. That's obviously absurd, and people are going to do that, and there's very little I can really do about it. So in the short term, and sort of in a very specific cases, you're going to see that. But I think in the long term, it's very much about building long-term trust so that you don't, every time there's a retraction or a fraud case, the scientific community doesn't have to be on the defensive. They can say, yes, and you know what? There's going to probably be another one next week or next year. And the reason that you know about it is because we're telling you. It's because we actually have these retractions. And so that's why we should just normalize this whole process. And again, I'm not a philosopher of science. I'm not a historian of science or sociologist. But I've already seen how there isn't as much of a punishment. In fact, there isn't a punishment when scientists retract pieces for honest error uh, the way there is when they retract papers for fraud. So let's just be more transparent. We all make mistakes. Even I make mistakes. I probably made a mistake in this interview. And that's okay if we sort of find it and say, well, let's make a correction. Thank you very much, Ivan Norensky, for that, and good luck for the future. Thank you, Olivier. Science with the Swiss Touch.